Welcome to Season 2 of Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers with co-hosts, New York Times best-selling authors and renowned investigative journalists, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. In this episode, part one of Animal, the rise and fall of the mob's most feared assassin, chronicled in Casey's classic true crime novel. Before there was Whitey Bulger, there was Joe the Animal Barboza. Casey and Dave give you the inside story of the first man ever placed into the witness protection program and one of the most important organized crime cases in American history. And now, Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. Joe Barboza is the most dangerous individual known, said FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover in 1965. Standing at the threshold of the Ebtide Lounge on Revere Beach, Barboza was ready to live up to Hoover's words. If Joe Barboza felt out of place, he certainly didn't show it. He was the lone Portuguese mobster swimming with a school of Sicilian sharks in the dark, dangerous water that was the Ebtide. It was their hangout after all, not his. Barboza's dream was to become the first non-Italian inducted in La Cosa Nostra. But to the gathered mafiosi, Barboza was not one of them, and he never would be. They called him the N-word behind his back. And to them, he was nothing more than a blunt instrument used to erase their enemies. Joe Barboza knew exactly what he was. The meanest, deadliest man in the New England mob, and tonight, he'd prove it to these so-called men of respect. Fats Domino had just completed his second set of the night. Poor Fats, he was one hell of a piano man, but he was also a degenerate gambler. He played the ebb tide a few times every year, earning 12 grand a week. Most times, though, Fats would hit the road owing the house more money than he'd earned. The lounge was relatively quiet now, just a few wise guys huddled around the bar, discussing past and future scores in hushed tones. Joe Barboza sat at a table, with his broad shoulders pressed against the wall and his eyes on the front door. The ebb tide was built with a narrow entrance to block armed men from bursting through the door all at once. Still, Barboza had his enemies, and the only way to stay alive in this game was to plan for the unexpected. He sipped at his glass of Crown Royal while regaling a buddy with stories from his brief but colorful career as a prize fighter. His deep baritone voice rose above the other conversations around him, much to the annoyance of one respected mafia captain. Hey, quiet down over there, the gangster shouted in Barboza's direction. Joe paid little attention and kept talking so the mobster repeated the order, only louder this time. Barboza raised his thick eyebrows and smiled. He got up from his chair and made his way toward the man, who was leaning against the bar. Barboza moved through the club slowly, his muscled shoulders carving through the crowd like a sharp blade. All eyes were on him now. He savored the attention, 
It was the same feeling he got each time that he had entered the ring. Only the spectators in this crowd were all like him. They were all dangerous men. Barboza approached the Mafia Capo and offered a crooked smile, followed by an open-handed slap across the face. The sheer sound of the impact, flesh on flesh, echoed through the bar. The mobster stumbled back and tried to brace himself for another blow. Barboza kept his dark eyes on the gangster. Your move. The problem was the gangster couldn't move. His hands were trembling and his arms remained at his sides as if he was paralyzed. Suddenly, a slightly built, bespectacled man wearing a pair of black suspenders and white socks made his way to the bar. Henry Tamelio may have looked like a meek accountant, but in fact he was the powerful underboss of the New England Mafia, or the office, as it was called. Tamelio held sway over everything that happened inside the Ebb Tide Lounge. His trademark cool exterior was now gone. The outrage over what he had just witnessed was boiling to the surface. I don't want you to ever slap that man again, Tamelio shouted at Barboza. This is my place. I don't want you to lay your hands on anyone here again. You hear me? Never lay your hands on anybody. Barboza didn't say a word. Instead, he nodded at the underboss and lunged forward toward the victim's face once more, this time with his teeth. Barboza bit into the mobster's cheek and ripped off his flesh. He spat it down on the surface of the bar. A stunned Henry Tamelio looked on in horror as the wounded mafia captain crumbled to the floor. Barboza smiled at the underboss as a stream of blood trickled from his lips. See, Henry? I didn't use my hands. After this night, Barboza's legend began to grow. He had struck fear into the heart of the Mafia. They no longer called him the N-Word. Barboza had a new nickname now. He was the Animal. Did you say that SOB, I'll break his back? Who? You. Say to who? To anyone. Forgive your speech. I don't even know who I was talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. Well, uh, Mr. Hoffman, I'm trying to find out. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm trying to find out whose back you were going to break. Figure your speech. Figure your speech. For Joe Barboza, his journey toward organized crime infamy began in Washington, D.C., beginning in 1957, when a young Bobby Kennedy questioned Teamsters boss Jimmy Hoffa about the union's ties to the mob. The hearings were officially called the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor Management. The hearings were run by U.S. Senator John McClellan, but they were really Bobby Kennedy's show. For 270 days, the 33-year-old attack dog from Massachusetts grilled Hoffa and even accused Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana of giggling like a girl while Kennedy tried to question him about mob activities. Giancana invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, as did all the Mafia bosses, all except New England's Raymond Patriarca, that is. I'd like to come back with you gentlemen when this is over with and really lay the law down what's going on in this country. It's none but a lot of hookwick that you people have been giving me for a long time. Raymond L.S. Patriarca balled his hands into tight fists as he stared across the committee room into the eyes of Bobby Kennedy, the son of Irish bootlegger Joseph P. Kennedy. 
The air was thick with the acrid stench of cigarette and pipe smoke, and the blood pumping through the mob boss's veins was fueled by his seething hatred for his young inquisitor. When grilled about allegations of beatings and threats dished out by his employees at the National Cigarette Service Vending Company in Providence, Rhode Island, Patriarca painted himself as an honest businessman who was unfairly targeted and harassed by police. But Bobby Kennedy didn't believe a word of it. Are you a mobster? Kennedy asked Patriarca. The only mob I know are the Irish hoodlums, Patriarca spat back. Now this was a veiled reference to Kennedy's father, who had amassed much of his wealth as a rum runner during Prohibition. But Patriarca didn't just want to embarrass RFK, he wanted to hurt him deeply. At the end of his testimony, Patriarca strolled over to Kennedy's table, leaned in and whispered, Your retarded sister has more brains than both you and your brother Jack combined. Patriarca was referring to Rosemary Kennedy, third child to Joseph and Rose Kennedy, who had been forced to undergo a prefrontal lobotomy at age 23 and was kept in a mental institution in Wisconsin. For years to come, Kennedy would call Patriarca that pig on the hill, in reference to Federal Hill in Providence. Bobby vowed to his closest confidants that one day he would bring Patriarca down. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. After John F. Kennedy's close win in the 1960 presidential election, JFK chose his brother Bobby as his attorney general. While JFK focused on winning the Cold War against the Soviet Union, RFK threw all of his energy and resources into breaking the mob. But the only way to destroy the Mafia was to do it from within. Kennedy joined forces with FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, a man he despised, to develop the top echelon informant program for the FBI. In a memo sent out on March 1, 1961, to all special agents in charge of field offices around the country, J. Edgar Hoover wrote, Through well-placed informants, we must infiltrate organized crime groups to the same degree that we have been able to penetrate the Communist Party and other subversive organizations. Certainly, we cannot relax even momentarily our efforts in combating the criminal underworld, including the prosecution of top hoodlums. All agents should be constantly alert for the development of new informants who may be in the position to help us. And with this one memo, Kennedy and Hoover had just created Frankenstein's monster. Hey Casey, like our fans who tune in here on Saint Sinners and Serial Killers, we're all about truth. Working on our projects, I need a boost sometimes. I love my coffee, but I'm really loving these true lifestyle drinks. Me too, Dave. There are six different flavors for every activity. They're gluten and GMO-free, organic, vegan, and there's no artificial sweeteners or additives. They're clean, and they contain all sorts of vitamins and nutrients, and they're damn tasty. You know, True's founder, Jack McNamara, is a former pro hockey player, and he created True because he was looking for healthy energy drinks that wouldn't make you crash. I've been loving Energy, the Orange Mango Wake Up Blend, as well as Focus, the Apple Kiwi Brain Blend. Jack and his team have scientifically engineered some game-changing beverages, and I'm working several of them into my daily routine. And I'm making them part of my lifestyle, too. True drinks for true crime fans. 
Go to drinktrue.com and use the code SAINTS to get 30% off your purchase. Now, back to Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers. Getting mobsters to turn on each other was no easy task. Not like it is today. These gangsters had sworn their allegiances to their bosses and to each other. Fuck the feds, they all said. But there was one budding killer in Boston who had changed the course of U.S. criminal history. Not that he knew it at the time. Joe Barboza was born into a life of violence. Literally. I interviewed his brother Donnie back in the day. Donnie was four years older than little Joe. Donnie's earliest memory involved his father, a local boxer and all-around piece of shit named Joe Barboza Sr., knocking his wife's teeth out while she was lying in bed with baby Joe in her arms. They lived on First Street, on the south side of New Bedford, the former whaling capital of the world, and famous in literary circles thanks to Melville's Moby Dick. But unlike the other kids in the predominantly Portuguese neighborhood, young Joe Barboza didn't want to spend his life at sea. Fuck all those fishermen, he'd say as a kid. I want to be a wise guy. Barboza didn't give a shit about Ted Williams or the Boston Red Sox. Instead, he idolized the gangsters who would roll through the city up from Providence with their polished Cadillacs and platinum blondes on their arms. But you're not Sicilian, his friends would say when Barboza was a teenager. You, you can't be one of them. But Joe had the perfect comeback ready. I'll be the meanest, coldest motherfucker they ever saw, he'd tell them and then they'll have to let me join their club. His earliest education came from a number of reform schools where he learned to become the predator, not the prey. He was naturally strong and thickly muscled. Barboza got into a lot of fights and found that he could take a good shot and deliver an even better one. He also planned daring escapes, only to boost a few cars and find himself back behind bars once again but eventually he landed at the infamous Charlestown State Prison, the so-called Gray Monster, which was said to be escape-proof. It was. After getting paroled, Barboza stayed in the Boston area and went into the loan-shocking business. He found success right away, as he explained in this rare 1970 interview. About uh, $5,500 a week. Interest. How much money did you have out to get 5500 a week? Well, I was a little lucky. I only had about 65000 I had one man that uh, I gave 21000 to, and he used to give me $1,800 a week. But when his customers couldn't pay the money back, the animal pounced. He was the lord of the jungle, and guys had to play by his rules or else. When we made the deal, I tell every person, don't take this money if you can't pay it every week. I prefer you not take this money because it can lead you into trouble. This is what's almost typical. If a guy was seven weeks late, say in the area of six, six or seven weeks late, and he was hiding, and I found him, I threatened him, and, he, and I told him that <laughs> you better come down to Connor and straighten this up. Now the fellow would continue hiding because he didn't have the money. And I could not, I could not, like, uh, uh, accept. I could not let myself accept that uh, uh, he was in trouble. So that uh, I stabbed guys after 14 weeks that still continue to hide. You know, I stabbed them in the face, I stabbed them in the legs, I stabbed them in the arms, I stabbed them in the chest. Working one street corner in East Boston, Barboza earned tens of thousands of dollars in just a few short months. 
His reputation grew, and he won the attention of Raymond Patriarca and the office. Patriarca's territory reached south into Connecticut and north into Boston and up through Maine. Once you start making uh, some good money, that's when they step in and say, listen, we'll give you the right to Shylock. Shylock belongs to, you know, <laughs> to the office. And you've been doing Shylock for a long, long time. Excuse me, Joe, what do you mean by the office? To the office, in other words, it goes to Archer. They wait till you make some money. And they say, all right, we're your partners. We want 50% of your business. Any trouble that you have, we'll take it. You don't have to hit nobody. You don't have to do this. They didn't do that. What do you mean hit? I mean, anybody. You know, what, what they use. What they use if they hit you, uh, you know, slap you, stab you, hit you with a, some kind of an implement. But it was Joe Barboza who did all the hitting. New England underboss Henry Tamelio watched Barboza box at the old Boston Garden, and he liked what he saw. He then sicked the animal on a local hood named Joe Francione, who was supposed to deliver a shipment of stolen furs to the office, but instead he sold them and pocketed the cash. Barboza learned that Francione was hiding out in an apartment in Revere, Massachusetts. Joe knocked on the front door, Francione was on a call with his partner in stolen goods at the time. He placed the phone receiver down on the table and he answered the door. All Francione's partner could hear was, No! Don't do it! Followed by three gunshots. Francione had attempted to flee, but Barboza shot him in the back of the skull, and then two more times for good measure. The partner on the phone hung up and rushed to the police station to turn himself in on an outstanding charge that he had. It was better to be stuck in jail than out on the streets and within reach of the animal. More hits followed. Joe the Animal Barboza soon got himself caught up in the bloodiest mob war in American history. From 1961 to 1967, 57 gangsters were gunned down, knifed, or garroted in the greater Boston area and the animal was the tip of the spear in as many as half of those murders. Each murder had to be sanctioned by the man, Raymond Patriarca. Normally, the boss would give Barboza his blessing, but on at least one occasion, Patriarca began to question the animal's sanity. Barboza wanted to kill some guy that owed him money and meticulously described to the boss how he was going to do it. He lives in a three-family house, Barboza said. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to break into the basement and pour gasoline all over the place. I'll either get him with the smoke inhalation or I can just pick him off when he climbs out the window. Barboza also told Patriarca that he'd cut the phone lines so his target couldn't call the fire department and he'd have three gunmen watching the other sides of the house. Does anyone else live in the house, Patriarca asked. Barboza nodded. Yeah, his mother. The boss couldn't believe what he was hearing. You're going to kill his mother too? It's not my fault she lives there, the animal shrugged. There are three needs in America today in law enforcement. The elimination of politics from law enforcement, emphasis on efficiency, and cooperation between police agencies. We should all be concerned with but one goal, the eradication of crime. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is as close to you as your nearest telephone. It seeks to be your protector in all matters within its jurisdiction. It belongs to you. That means, gangster, you can't get away with it.
That was J. Edgar Hoover in the 1930s. Three decades later, on March 10th, 1965, Director Hoover was notified in a memo that Joe Barboza and his associate, Vincent Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, had met with Raymond Patriarca to ask permission to kill a Boston gangster named Edward Teddy Deegan. The memo also stated that Flemmy had been with Barboza during the murder of Joseph Francione several months before. This information did nothing to sway Hoover's design to align the FBI with Vincent Flemmy. Two days later, on March 12, 1965, Flemmy was designated a top echelon informant and assigned to a Boston FBI agent named H. Paul Rico. Several hours later, the bullet-riddled body of Teddy Deegan would be found in a dark alleyway in Chelsea, Massachusetts. And the United States justice system would be changed forever. Saints, Sinners, and Serial Killers is a joint production of Mudhouse Media and Fort Point Media. Produced and edited by Mike Joshua. Studio space provided by WorkLocalMA.com. Original music by Chris Spagone. For more from the Mudhouse Media Podcast Network, visit MudhouseMedia.com. And for the latest on their podcasts and all of the writing and film projects of Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge, visit FortPointMedia.com. <laughs>